It's good to be here. Um, uh, let me set the stage for a moment of a recent epic movie that kind of came to a conclusion, okay? So here we are. We are on a desert, island, uh, desert planet. There's this young woman, maybe mid-20s, braided hair, kind of coming to a close of this epic quest. An old lady comes up to her and asks her a question. She asks her, what is your name? She has a moment of premonition. She looks out into the distance. And then she answers with her first name. And then the person says, well, what is your last name? And does anybody know what the answer was at this point? Her answer was Ray Skywalker. Now, when I say those two words, what emotions come to your heart as I say that? If you don't know, that's the end of Star Wars, the last one. Right? Okay. <laughs> if you didn't know. I know. Sorry. It's been over a year. Don't say anything about Spider-Man, though. I will lose it. No, I'm joking. Okay. So what emotions come as you hear Ray Skywalker? When you saw that scene for the first time, does anybody care less? You're like, who? Yeah, I see, a, I see one hand. You're like, who cares, right? For some people, though, they freaked out about that scene. Like, that moment has been building, think about it, since 1977, the first movie came out. I mean, it's been building the momentum, that epic story that's gone through different writers different directors, different uh, generations even, three different trilogies. You think of uh, back with Luke, you think with Leia and Hans and all the different things they go to, and it ends with this girl saying her name is Ray Skywalker. So if you're like a Star Wars fan, you're in it and you're like sitting on the edge of your seat, passionate, like, and even for many people, there was, they were really upset. Because you're telling me that's the story? That's, that's it? That's what you've been planning these last few movies? For, for others, it's like, who cares? I know nothing about this. When I think of Skywalker, I, I, I just think of all my weird cousins that are always talking about this, okay? So, but if you know it, that, those words bring something up for you. You're, you're right in it. You're, you're like sitting on the edge of your seat. But if you don't care, it means nothing to you. It's like, oh, whatever. Now, there's a, one little thing about this scene as well that I think is important with where we're going. When you write a good story, typically you begin with the end in mind, right? Like you know the arts, you know where you're going, you know what the culmination scene is going to be. Uh, the actress that played uh, Ray, Sky Ray, now Ray Skywalker, her name's Daisley Ridley, she did an, uh, an interview in this, after the second one of her, that trilogy, which was The Last Jedi, which I liked. Most Star Wars fans didn't, but whatever. And she says that, like, oh, at this point, in this, we actually didn't know where we were going to go with the character yet. And I'm like, wait a second, you're telling me that you're... This is like a multi-gajillion dollar uh, franchise, and you're winging it? Like, you're figuring it out as you go? 
Like, you don't do that. You can't, that's just not how it works. They, and you realize that when they get to the climax, they kind of faked it until they made it. Now, this Star Wars epic saga, glorious stories, like all of them, it gives us a glimpse towards something deeper that we long for, though. The reason why so many great stories that are ever told all have similar themes is because God has written eternity into our hearts and they tap into that part of us that we're created to long for. It's that part of us that's created to worship as we're looking at today. Whether it, whatever saga it is. And so today and this season of the church, as we are in the middle of Advent, as we look at the beginning of Jesus' earthly life, we're entering into the climax of the epic saga that is the biblical narrative. We're entering into what's going to be the climax, that moment that the writer has been building up towards. And so as we are reading this passage... There's some words in here and there's some concepts that if you don't understand the build up, it means nothing to you. For, it's like if I say Ray Skywalker and you know, have I no idea who Anakin, Luke, Leia are, you're going to see her say, you're going to hear me say these words and it's going to mean nothing to you. So before we go to the climax, before we hit this epic um, the, the bigness of this passage, what I have to do is I want to back up a little bit and go earlier into the story. And it's all around this one word that's said twice in verse 14. It's this around this word glory. What does it mean that uh, not only the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but we have seen his glory? So, to understand that, let's go back. Let me define glory for a moment while you flip your Bible to Exodus chapter 16. So, glory in the Old Testament um, literally means weighty. It's, it's something that's weighty. It's heavy. But uh, there's a scholar by the name of Richard Bauckham. He's probably one of the most preeminent um, John scholars. And he uses the term to define glory, and he uses the term visible splendor. So when you think of the word glory, you're going to see as we go back in the story and unpack some passages, that you're going to see the splendor of God, but it's not just splendid in this non-seen way. There's some visible way that God's glory has been seen. So... There's three different um, chunks that we're going to look at. There's the story of the manna. There's a story of the mountain. And there's a story of the meeting place. So these are build up in the story of understanding what's so important about this passage. So Exodus chapter 17. If you know the story, it goes like this. God's people had been redeemed by God out of slavery in Egypt. He's, they've crossed the Red Sea. Um, they no longer are living under the rule and reign of Pharaoh. God is now their king and their ruler, and he's giving them ways in which they are to live out in 
the desert under his leadership. They start to grumble and complain very quickly, actually. They start to say, oh, if we only had the food that we ate back then, we would be satisfied, forgetting that they were in slavery um, to the Egyptians. So God provides for them food in this form of this bread that pretty much develops out of dew on the land. This is what it says when it talks about this manna or this bread that has come down from heaven. It says this in Exodus 16, verse 7. And in the morning, when you see the manna, you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he heard your grumbling against the Lord. You will see the visible splendor when you see the manna, when you see the bread that comes down from heaven. Then it says this in verse 10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked to the wilderness... And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared to them in a cloud. So in this manna story, the bread of life was the visible splendor, the glory of God. There was a cloud out in the wilderness that was the visible splendor of God that was to guide them as they walked and lived under his rulership in the desert. We're going to jump ahead. If you, got, if you have your Bible open, if you're flicking through your thumb, um, phone, Exodus 24. Not only do we see glory in the uh, manna, we also see it at Mount Sinai. At this point, God has been giving them rules. He's been giving them laws on what it means to live under his rule. He's confirming that covenant. And in verse 24, this is what, he, um, what happens. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in sight of the people of Israel. So Mount, uh, excuse me, Moses goes up on this mountain. The visible splendor of God is fire and a cloud covering the mountain. He goes up there for this amount of time. What do the people do while he's up there? They start to turn away from God. They, they worship, they create, create something that's against God. What happens after that? This is what it says in Exodus chapter 33. Moses begs God to not do anything to his people. He remembers them of his covenant. And listen to what Moses then says in verse 18. He says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, God, said, I will make all goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by you on the cleft of the rock, I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you sh shall not be seen." 
And in 30, uh, chapter 34, this is what it says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the, um, the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So on the mountain, God's visible splendor was a cloud. It was a devouring fire. But he tells Moses, you can't see me. You can't see my glory. Because if you do, no one can. It's, it's, it's too magnificent. It's too splendid for you to see my glory. So I'm just going to cover you. And then as I go past you, you're just going to see the, the back of me. You're, never, you're not able to see my face. Building tension. Last, the meeting place. Two of them. I'm going to do this quickly. There was two meeting places that God had designed for God's people to meet him. The first one was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was in essence an elaborate tent that was where God's people were to meet him. And this is what it says there. Then the cloud covered the tent and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meaning because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So you have this picture of God's glory filling this tabernacle, filling this tent. His glory is so magnificent, so splendid, so wonderful that no human being can look at it. As you move to the temple, which is a permanent tabernacle in one location, God fills that temple. But as the story goes, as God's people continue to rebel, what happens? A prophet sees this vision of God's glory leaving the temple. So when you get to John chapter 1, when you get to the point when these people are looking for God's glory, they're looking for something, there's tension building on what they what they're looking for, what they're longing for. All of a sudden, with that backstory, these words start to jump off the page. Now, with that, let me read this to you again. And the word became flesh. And I'm going to read it like a transliteration. The word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. Dwelt among us literally means tabernacled. So when the word became flesh... This word, who was with God, as John 1, 1 says, who was um, always God, was with him in the beginning. Through all things were made through him, this one now tabernacles among us. And, not only that, we have seen his glory. The glory, uh, <coughs> glory as of only the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, you get to this picture of Jesus, and what is he? He is the tabernacle. He is the wandering presence of God, calling his people to join him. But not only that. The words that are said, he comes with what? Full of grace and truth. So I love that Josh read the NLT, even though that was not planned. I love that he did that, because if you read the NLT, grace and truth is, 
it says abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Where did we hear that before? We heard it when God would, his glory would walk, go past him in the rock. So when Moses was there waiting to see God's glory, what is God calling out as he's going by? I am full of glory. I am full of grace and truth. John says that he comes full of grace and truth. He comes abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So if you have this as a backstory and you see this, don't miss this. When we are looking and we're remembering this Advent season, when we look at the baby in the manger, we're seeing the fullness of the glory of God. When you, as we open up the book of John and continue that over the next few months, when you look at Jesus on the run for the first two years of his life as a political refugee, that is the fullness of the glory of God. When you see Jesus raised in obscurity by a poor family that can't even, can barely afford to do an honest um, offering at the temple, that is the fullness of the glory of God. When his hands are raised, extended to heal the lame, when his eyes are covered in tears, mourning the loss of his dear friend, that is the fullness of the glory of God. When you hear him speaking directly to those in opposition to him, that is his glory and grace and truth. When you see him speaking to a shame-filled woman who showed up to a well at a time when no one else was supposed to be there, that is the fullness of the glory of God. And when we look in that manger, when we look at that nativity scene, when we see that baby, that is the glory of God. As we think about worship on Sundays, as we think about the magnificence of this season, as we think about five days from now, six days from now, when we celebrate the birth of our Savior, it's not just a birth of a baby. This has been building for generations. Star Wars couldn't get it right because they didn't have the end in mind. But this, we, the scriptures have one main author that has been consistently writing the same story over and over and over again. So I hope you don't look at this as this, okay, cool, now I have the checkbox mentally of how this plays together. I hope this leads our hearts to worship, to be in awe of, to, to put all of the things in our lives and be able to say, okay, if he can do that, then he can handle these things. But also, what does this change for us? What does this, what does this mean for us? A few things that I want to emphasize. The first thing, Jesus, if he's the fullness of the glory of God who gives us grace and truth, then this is going to determine how we wait and long for him to return. Advent is about waiting. It's about longing. It's not about getting everything you want right away. 
Advent is when we look back at those first disciples of Jesus. And they're waiting for the Messiah to show up. It's us as we are in the midst of this fallen, broken world. Learning to wait for him to come again and fix all of its brokenness. The question for us is, what type of life do we live as we wait and we long? What does it mean for us as we wait and we long for it? I think part of this is that we are recipients of and extenders of God's grace and truth. And I love how this passage has grace and truth. Some people, and many of us, like to lean one side or the other, right? Like, oh, I'm just a truth speaker. I like to tell it as it is. That grace is soft stuff. Or some people like the grace side of it. They only like the forgiveness. They like the, the, that piece of it, but they don't like Jesus standing up as the leader and Lord as well. But for us, as God's people, we're recipients of both. We received truth, not some abstract concept, but because Jesus is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But we've also received grace. We've received his unmerited forgiveness that we'll remember in a few minutes during communion. That we deserve death. We deserve to not receive gifts. There's no reason why Jesus should have done this, and yet he did that very thing for us. So we're undeserving, and so we should be recipients of and extenders of that. This is what J.I. Packer says. He says this, The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob like that. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principles of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just their own friends in whatever way there seems need. What is Packer getting at here? He's saying that like our master who did these very things, whose glory was revealed in obscurity, in the middle of nowhere, not in a palace, but he came not so that he would receive all these things, but he came so that he could give all these things away. He could give himself to fellow man. He could give his very life to those that are in need. And so because we've received grace and truth, we can freely give that same grace and truth. And lastly, I want to ask you this question that, to reflect on for a moment. What is it that you find glorious? What is glorious in your mind? We have a story, and we live into this story, where the main writer has been the same consistently writing for generations. He's not winging it. He wasn't building it in the moments. 
But he was building all of the story up to the point where we would see the face of his fullness of glory. The fullness of grace and truth seen in Jesus. The question is, is that glorious to you? Is the magnificence of what Jesus did in this season the most glorious thing in your heart and in your life? When you think of glory, do you think of Him? And when you think of Him, is He splendid? Is He majestic? Is Jesus a marvel worthy of your life? This last couple days, uh, this friend of mine that I used to work with, uh, she posted this thing about how Christianity was all about fear-mongering. And I go out and I just reply, I reply like, as a Christian pastor, I'd love to you to know that there's, I understand why you get to that conclusion. If you look at what's happening around us in the world and you see what's on the news, it makes sense that you would come to that conclusion. But I would, I'd love to offer you an alternative. I'd love to help you see that the this, this story of God, the gospel, is actually about love and peace and hope and grace extended to you. Somebody responded, and their response was, <laughs> so I, I giggle, their response was, I, I can't listen to you because you went on this extravagant va uh, vacation that you took your family on, so, but if you're willing to p make a minimum wage, then I'll listen to you. It's like, okay. There's a lot to unpack there. We live in a world where there's a lot of obstacles to seeing the glory of Jesus. Some of them are our own making. I'm not saying, but some of them are our own. Christians haven't made it necessarily easier to see Jesus as glorious in some cases. That doesn't have to be true among us. Whatever you see on Facebook and Twitter or social media and you see all these conversations and you see what people are trying to make the visible splendor of the church to be like and what Jesus is supposed to be, all of those things don't have to be what's true of this family though. And it all comes back to the question, what do you find glorious? If it's something and oftentimes other than Jesus, other than what he has done for us, if we're not regularly enamored by this, the good news of what Jesus has done, if we're, if we're sitting back just like, okay, Justin, I get it. Are you done yet? If we don't think it's that good news, what makes us think that we're going to be able to share it to our friends that don't yet know? Are, what do we find glorious? Are, what have you received the fullness of his grace and truth?